Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show, Richie Robertson, Taylor Professor of the German Language and Literature at Oxford and author of the new book, The Enlightenment, The Pursuit of Happiness, 1680 to 1790. Uh, Richie, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you. So congratulations on the book. I wonder whether when you started it, you could have imagined that the whole notion of the Enlightenment would be under attack. Well, that was quite easy to receive. The notion of the Enlightenment has been under attack for a long time. If you go back to the 1940s, the book by Adorno and Horkheimer, Dialectic of Enlightenment, is a polemic, depending on how it was released against the process of Enlightenment, or against the Enlightenment. And in fact, if you go further back to the reaction against the the French Revolution, it was often blamed precisely on the Enlightenment, on the the feelings of of Paris, and conspiracy theories attributing attributing to the Enlighteners an intent to undermine society um, flourished even then. And as you uh, make clear in the book, and as you just said in your answer there, it's, it's always been uh, something which is controversial, but equally it's also, as you say, something that is hard not to find inspiring, the advance of reason, good sense, empirical inquiry, challenging superstition and blind prejudice. That search for the betterment of human life and the advance of happiness is it, what's not to like, really. Um, what, can, what can we say against it? Um, I suppose the one question to ask is um, who, who does the enlightening? Because against the advance of reason, you have to set the importance of, 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 of tradition. People don't change their ideas or the ways of life very quickly. And in many ways, it's a good thing that, that that's so. Conservatism is an important force to keep society stable. And it's very easy for um, the task of enlightenment to get into the hands of a, of a minority, perhaps um, a self-appointed elite, and to, to run ahead of public opinion. The management of public opinion is, is a very important part of enlightenment and is not always well conducted. And and do you think that part of the cleavage seems to be between those who are empiricists and those who are not? Or is that an oversimplification? That's a difficult question to answer. Um, the trouble with empiricism as a, as a philosophical position is that, um, yes, um, it is in all sorts of ways not only salutary, but essential. You have to understand the world. For that, you have to look at it and examine it in detail as it is. Um, But it sometimes happens in philosophy that empiricism um, um, undermines itself. And you could argue that's the case with Hume, a a central figure of the Enlightenment. But when Hume looks and how we get our knowledge of the world, he finds that our knowledge of the world is basically very uncertain. How We take for granted, for example, the notion of cause, that event A causes event B. But as Hume argues at some length, we never see a cause. We just see event A, 
absolutely see event B, but the cause is invisible. And it may be that her concept of cause rests, on, rests either on blind faith or on a predisposition implanted in us by nature for our, for our own good. So that um, if you press philosophical inquiry very far, um, you would, if you acted on it, make it impossible to go on living. Hume ends his argument by saying that when he gets into such philosophical deep waters, he seems to himself like a strange, unnatural monster. And he, he goes off, re-enters social life, and plays a game of backgammon with his friends. Um, eventually, Hume's arguments arouse Kant, as he said, through his dogmatic slumbers, and Kant provides a, a solution. Um, so, empiricism, though indispensable, doesn't solve every problem. And actually, that's one of the one of the principal uh, arguments. It seems to me of the book that, uh, in, in some ways, you argue that we've we've misunderstood uh, these what you call enlighteners. That it's not just about empiricism; it it is also about emotion uh, and that uh, that phrase that you use, uh, the pursuit of happiness. Yes, um, yes, that's not a new idea. I think it bears repeating a great deal that reason for the Enlightenment was not rationalism, but rather good sense, as you said earlier, and that um, the Enlighteners, alongside reason, appealed to emotion, to sensibility, to sympathy, and to what we would nowadays perhaps call empathy. You can find that emphasis at the beginning of the 18th century in the philosophy of Shaftesbury, who talks of the basic human disposition towards sociability. We are, her we are herd animals. And you can find that the argument pursued through a series of philosophers, including Adam Smith. We remember the wealth of nations, but before that, Smith had written the theory of moral, of moral sentiments. And in fact, not only that book, but also the wealth of nations, depend on the idea of human connection. Smith says early in The Wealth of Nations that um, trading is a basic form of sociability. Um, and in fact, because um, sympathy, etc., is so important, it comes to dominate the thought in the latter part of the century. Um, I devote some space to the great novels of the mid-century, novels by Richardson, Rousseau, and Goethe, which um, called forth highly emotional responses. Unfortunately, we have, the we have these responses documented in, um, in letters, uh, reviews, and also a remarkable amount of fan fiction. It is. I, I mean, you mention uh, Shaftesbury there and novels and and arts. I mean, it's one of the things that I I found really fascinating actually in the book that uh, these different uh, battles, if you like, that these characters had about you know, f for example, aesthetics, what the, what we might consider beautiful. That Shaftesbury, for example, uh, you point out, uh, says that the beautiful, the true, and the good they're identical. But somebody like Wordsworth will 
warns us not to put our trust in beauty. So again, this reinforces this idea that uh, the Enlightenment is not some kind of monolith. Yes, absolutely. And you've just described a huge arc extending from Shaftesbury, whose aesthetics are taken from, from Neoplatonism, in which the good, the true, and the beautiful all converge, to Wordsworth. Now, Wordsworth is developing there the idea of the sublime. Um, and the key text of the mid-century is Edmund Burke's essay on the sublime and beautiful. For Burke, the beautiful is just unproblematic. It's obviously beautiful. Um, but very often, Burke's beautiful is what we would nowadays call, call pretty. Whereas the sublime is a source of aesthetic pleasure, which includes the experience of fear. For example, the stormy sea, high mountains, came in the course of the century to be seen as, as um, aesthetically pleasing. I say that rather than beautiful, because the experience they convey um, is, as it were, double. There is, first of all, revulsion, um, and then you overcome your revulsion and are not just pleased, but excited, thrilled by the sight in front of you. I found, for example, in the book by Mary Wollstonecraft about her travels in Scandinavia, incidentally a fascinating book, her description of a waterfall seen in Norway, which absolutely corresponds to the theory, to the theory of sublime. First of all, the sight of all this water dashing down um, terrifies her, then she gets a grip on herself and finds that it is, after all, after all, thrilling. So yes, you have various different um, aesthetic conceptions developing in the course of the century, and the idea that terror can be aesthetically pleasing gives you the, the Gothic novel, which is the ancestor of present-day horror fiction and film. And as well as the the arts, a lot of the things that uh, these characters are interested in are actually very practical as well. That there's that that liberal in spirit of the practical uh, enlightenment, you call it. That uh, the police, encyclopedias, agriculture, medicine, schools, prisons. I I, I could the list goes on. That uh, they're also very concerned about the practical things in society. Thank you. Very glad you brought that up. But I'm anxious to convey that the Enlightenment was not simply a philosophical movement. It wasn't carried on simply by white males in wigs sitting, sitting in their studies or even their coffee houses, but it was also carried on by, by administrators. The many German states, around about 300 until the, uh, until the time of Napoleon, each had a staff of university-trained administrators. France had a number of administrators. The famous Enlightener Turgot was one of them. And their business was to supervise infrastructure, roads, bridges, and canals, um, to see that the streets were kept clean, to repress crime, um, and to take care of, pu of public morals. Now, all this, use the word police, um, I think it must be made, made clear that police has a, 
slightly different meaning the 18th century what it does now. Police in English, and of course police in French and polizei in German, meant precisely this, the supervision of public order and, 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 and cleanliness. And in fact, um, the Enlightenment police state didn't have the connotations that that um, term acquired in the 20th century. It meant a well-ordered state, carefully administered. Now, of course, administrators weren't perfect. Some were incompetent. Some were crooked. One of the most famous German administrators, Juste, in the 18th century, ended up in prison for, embezz for embezzling funds. But um, by and large, they do contribute immensely to the well-being of society, whereas in, in Britain, these things are managed much more by private enterprise. Road, turnpike roads and canals, for example, were built by um, um, companies founded for the purpose. In fact, um, the, the British welfare state is ultimately, and by a very long indirect route, a descendant of 18th century continental conceptions of, 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 of police. It's, it's, it's as well, they very often, these kind of ideas are some of the ones which have given the Enlightenment this reputation that you talked about earlier as being very cold. Uh, for example, Jeremy Bentham, somebody who becomes uh, apparently obsessed with things mechanical, with efficiency, almost the complete opposite of the pursuit of happiness. Oh, yeah, well, Bentham... Um is a very problematic figure. Um, Bentham is well known for his idea of the of the of the of the panopticon. The panopticon was a kind of prison um, involving surveillance. The governor would be at the centre, and from his central room, he'd be able to see into all the cells all round him. And these um, cells would be in several levels. The prisoners, each in solitary confinement doing some useful labor, would thus be constantly surveyed. Bentham was very keen on this idea, and even proposed that um, something similar should be done for the design of schools. The school boys should all be in their rooms, separately, and so unable to copy each other's work, surveyed by the headmaster. That was a bit daft. And the panopticum, he did actually propose the idea to Parliament, and Parliament turned it down. Um, not so much because he disliked the idea of surveillance, but because Bentham wanted to run the panopticon for his private profit. And Parliament, this is circa 1810, um, thought that um, private individuals should not make money out of prisons. Um, but Bentham is just an extreme, rather eccentric example. It's important to say that the panopticon was never built. It never left the drawing board. But um, for a long time back, Administrators had the problem, what to do with, the, with the, the destitute poor, what to do with beggars? And they never, ma they never managed to solve it. Um, and this certainly in Britain goes back to the, the Elizabethan poor laws. Workhouses were set up for the poor, but um, they were maintained um, at a very cheap rate, and the, 
the, the work that they did, supposedly did, was no use to anyone. So they were miserable and half-starved. As, as for beggars, the idea in the, in the German states was that beggars should be expelled, um, and so they would, they would be collected and sent over the border. This is called the Schub, which means literally the push. But um, the beggars pushed over the border, found themselves in another, in another state, which didn't want them either. So they'd be taken and pushed over the next border, and if this went on long enough, they'd go in a vast circle and wind up where they were before. Um, and as you, as, you men- and, uh, as you mentioned Wordsworth, Wordsworth um, has a, a very good poem, The Old Cumberland Beggar, in which he says it's much better for the beggar to be to roam the, the country roads and be dependent on the, on the charity of country folk than to, than to be locked up in a workhouse. And possibly he was right. So that was an, an, in, an, an insoluble, or at least an unsolved problem. Yeah, and, it's, and these these issues around the poor are ones that uh, crop up all the time in the book. I mean, you you quote Rousseau talking about the virtuous poor, uh, mm-hmm. and Adam Adam Smith emerges as a, as a much more nuanced figure in your reading. That, for for example, he has no sentimentality at all about what it meant to be poor, uh, and mm-hmm. so when he puts an emphasis on education uh, because this would create an intelligent people, and this is as far away. From from the the kind of the idea of laissez-faire that very often he's associated with um, by particularly by those on the right. Um, so so uh, kind of again, these figures are much more complex than perhaps they've they've ended up being seen by the twenty first century. Well, that's, that's certainly true, and <clears throat> the adoption of people like Adam Smith as a sort of um, 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 label for present-day political or economic policies does, of course, distort the past. Yes, Smith is a nuanced thinker, and I very much like his idea that there should be um, public public education in in the rudiments of philosophy to stop people falling for superstitious ideas. I also like his idea that it's um, a good thing that girls don't go to school, because if they went to school, the heads would be filled with useless Greek and Latin, whereas as it is, they learn useful practical things. But um, Smith is also a very harsh writer in some ways. He's um, um, very confident that <coughs> the answer to, to labor shortage is simply to, 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 re- to redeploy people. He does assume that work can be shunted about just like that. And when it comes to famines, of course he condemns the East India Company for allowing the terrible Bengal famine to happen. But um, he thinks, nevertheless, that um, farmers and merchants ought not to lower the price of grain, but still let grain, the price of grain find its natural level, even if um, a number of people starve on the way. So there's this um, ruthless streak in Smith, which... Um, it's very, it's very, very difficult to like. 
Yeah, it, it does make him a, a very complex figure. Ooh. And I mean, as you as you say, when you mentioned the East India Company there, that he's sharply critical of colonization, of mercantilism. Uh, surprisingly, he's absolutely scathing about uh, those those in business um, who he sees conducting essentially a conspiracy against the public. You uh, quite amusingly quote at one point where he says that businessmen are not fit to govern. Yes, indeed. And I think that is a, a contradiction, Smith. Um, on the one hand, he thinks that um, um, merchants ought to manage things for themselves. They should be allowed to practice laissez-faire. But on the other hand, he says many times that left to themselves, merchants will try to prevent competition and found, found um, monopolies. The East India Company was such a, a monopoly. It had a monopoly on trade with India. Um, so I think, um, I think that there's a, an unresolved and very serious contradiction in Smith. The one thing that the Enlighteners do seem pretty united on is their opposition to empire. Um, at one point, you say that empire is an anathema to uh, an Enlightener. Uh, you quote Montaigne, um, Adam Smith, Immanuel uh, Kant, and uh, they all oppose it. There's a quote from Montaigne on the Spanish Empire, so many nations wiped out, yes. so many yeah. people killed, all yeah. for the pearls and pepper business. That's a very famous quotation. In fact, um, the, atrocities of, the atrocities of the Spaniards in um, Spanish America were thought of in the 18th century, rather as we think of the Holocaust. Um, in this connection, the people I really would like to mention are the Abbe Reynal and Denis Diderot, who collaborated in the book The Histoire du Design, The History of the East and West Indies an immense 10-volume um, history of the, um, European, of, of the overseas European empires. It begins with the Spanish and Portuguese, goes on through the, the Dutch, the French, and the, and the British, and it ends on an inspiring note by taking account of the new revolt by the American colonists against their their, 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 British, their, their British rulers. The East deserves a sort of um, um, immense ragbag of information. Um, it's huge, ten fat, ten fat volumes, quite hard to get hold of. Um, I don't think there's a usable um, text in print at the moment, so I, I may be wrong, but it's the most inspiring anti-colonial work. And as you, as you point out, that very often the point that is being made in works like that is not just that empire harms those who have been conquered, it, it also uh, harms the home metropolis through luxury, through corruption, through stagnation and so on. Yes. It was notorious that um, the Spanish Empire led to the economic decline of Spain. They were able to import so much from gold and especially silver from the mines of South America that they didn't bother to support um, trade um, and commerce back home. And so Spain um, 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 stagnated. As for luxury, yes, that was a great point of debate in the, in the 18th century. Um, stern moralists complained that um, luxuries starting with tea and coffee.
going on to, going on to foreign fabrics, um, where spoiling people and making them soft. Um, you see plenty of examples if you read Pope, read the rape, the, the, the rape of the Lock, where somebody has a, a charming Indian screen. Um, but others pointed out that um, luxury, luxuries, actually don't, don't hurt anyone, and the growth of luxury um, adds new energy to the economy. It aids the circulation of goods and money. Um, in the long run, benefits everyone. Although doesn't doesn't uh, both Kant and Rousseau both say that actually that it diminishes uh, military values of kind of moral virtue? All of these things are undermined by those kind of luxuries that you're talking about. Not only Kant and Rousseau; it was a, a common cliche at the time that um, luxury and soft living tended to to enervate. That's the word always used to en- en- enervate um, populations and make them un- unwarlike. Gibbon tells in the decline and fall how the Romans were, were, were enervated and to, to the point that in, in the end, that in the end they recruited barbarian legions to do their fighting for them. The idea of, a, of, 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 of military service as a way of um, strengthening patriotism in the, in the population, was quite popular. The argument against that was that um, in, in, a, in a modern society, it doesn't make sense for all able-bodied male citizens to spend a lot of their time in the army. And it was argued that there should instead be a, a, a standing army, always in readiness. But the argument against that was that a standing army could easily become an instrument of tyranny. The king could use it against his own people. So luxury is just an, an enormous subject. I mean, it's it's interesting that that is one of the uh, arguments from the Enlightenment that has very much been picked up and applied to uh, contemporary society, particularly uh, the United States, but the West more generally. This idea of decline and fall, of decadence, of luxury. Um, how useful do you think it is to make those kind of connections between the historical period that and philosophical ideas that you've studied in that context and trying somehow to apply them to contemporary society? I think the idea of um, decline has been around around for a very long time. I think perhaps it says more about the moral standpoint of the critic than it does about how society is, 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 is really going. It's a tourist, for example, that um, um, Tacitus, describing the ancient Germans and their um, warlike virtues, um, was no doubt telling us some useful ethnographic facts, but he was mainly concerned um, to use the Germans as a foil to criticize the um, um, luxury of, of, of the Romans. And polemics against luxury in more recent times and against decline do tend to the same function. I think, I think we should regard it with some, some suspicion. 
The other criticism that is very often made of the Enlightenment today comes from um, uh, people like Patrick Deneen um, in Why Liberalism Failed, for example, where he, he argues that it's really it's implicit in the Enlightenment project that it would ultimately end up eating itself, that it destroyed our attachments to God, to family, to place, uh, and replaced them with really nothing except ourselves, that we lost that sense of the common good. Now, it's a very interesting book, that one by uh, Patrick Deneen. What, what do you make of those kind of arguments that perhaps the Enlightenment is now really living off fumes? Well, I think the idea of a common good is very important, but obviously it to be sustained by. We talk about ideas of some social tradition, hierarchy, and, and, and religion, is that... Um, Thanks to the Enlightenment, they can be exposed as fictions, and very often self-interested fictions. So I think these ideas are rather, um, a rather flimsy foundation um, for, for society. Um, I'm conscious myself of being old-fashioned in advoca- advocating the common good and, hu- and human solidarity, um, and in deploring the enormous increase in um, economic inequality in present-day society. But I think these are the ideals we have to, we, we ought to go back to and try, try to strengthen. I do think that um, a society can't be founded for long on, on, on untruths which are easily exposed. The other aspect that I've, I really loved about this book is that it models a kind of pluralism in kind of understanding the complexity of ideas, that you're not banging one particular drum. Um, and in doing that, you actually exemplify something that these enlighteners thought was very important. Voltaire, for example, saying that to be social, one must communicate with politeness, that the emphasis on civility, that there has to be a code of conduct to... Uh, debate and discussion and so on. Uh, how, how do we get back to that kind of idea? Well, I don't, I don't do any prescriptions for present-day society. That's a shame. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, the idea of politeness is very important. And <clears throat> it doesn't just mean a sort of nimini-pimini display of good manners. It has to do with the way in which we live together and talk together, with the way in which we make society not simply um, an arena in which you come together for practical purposes, but um, a setting in which life is actually pleasant. Let me just give one example. A book at the end of the 18th century, which I have a section on, is um, Schiller's Letters on the Aesthetic Education of Mankind. And he means many things by aesthetic education, but one of the many is, is... practice of politeness, of considerateness, of social graces as a way of, um, of, of beautifying life and introducing an aesthetic element into, into everyday social interaction. And that may sound like something um, superfluous, it's very, it's very far from it. It's a way of oiling the wheels of social interaction. And the discourse of politeness that goes back through the, through the century. There is, of course, some snobbery involved. It often means um, imitating aristocratic manners. But um, beyond that, 
there is a, a real value in it. And finally, Richie, uh, I mean, for example, when I when I think about the Enlightenment and that summing up its spirits, uh, the person that really encapsulates that the most for me is Mozart. Well, I've just seen my neck out and see that um, despite everything, my favourite Enlightener is, is David Hume as a philosopher, as a historian, and as a very astute and humorous polemicist against religion. It is, however, true that Hume has brought his, his copybook by the well-known footnote in which he expresses racist views. It's true also that he was very insensitive regarding slavery and, as has recently emerged, advised a, fri- a friend to, buy a, to invest in a slave plantation in the West Indies. These are serious blots in his copybook, but I think, nevertheless, um, Hume, as a thinker, a writer, and in most respects, a strikingly good man, um, is my my favourite enlightener. Uh, so the book is The Enlightenment, The Pursuit of Happiness, 1680 to 1790. It's written by my guest, Richie Robertson, uh, and published by Harper. Uh, but for now, Richie, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. A pleasure. Thank you very much. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thank you.